If you have your scriptures with you this morning, let's turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're starting a new section of the book of Ephesians this morning. And um, Paul turns his focus from what God has done. And as he brings the church together, there's some very uh, triumphant truth in this passage as we uh, begin this week and we spend next week. We're going to talk about a theme called increasing. And uh, it's a theme that is through the center of the Bible. And if you happen to be in the Sunday school this morning, you got a little foretaste of what next week's going to be like. And as we look at this theme, increasing, um, I want you to see that, that, the, that Paul is praying that, even for believers today, that you would be increasing in the knowledge and in the wisdom and revelation of God, because increasing in the knowledge of God is increasing in the believer's life. Increasing in the knowledge of God is an increasing in the believer's life. Let's begin in verse 15. We're just going to read. Oh, we'll read down through this passage since we're just starting on this this week, and uh, we'll stay in it for a couple weeks probably, but uh, let's just read it all this morning. Beginning at verse 15, chapter 1, the great book of Ephesians. Here it is. For this reason, Paul says, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. It's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ even when he raised him from the dead and he seated him right hand at the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a, what a glorious passage this is. Um, I just revel in the truth that is central here in the first chapter of Ephesians. I pray, Father, that as we deliver this truth today, that you would open the minds and hearts of your people, just as Paul is praying for here. I, I, every pastor this day must make the same prayer that through the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, you would open to them wisdom and revelation of who you are and knowledge about you and your plan to bring all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. What a glorious truth this is. As we begin this passage this morning, speak to our hearts. Go past my simple abilities. Speak directly and heal your people. Encourage your people. Love your people with your word. Build them up. Increase in their lives their knowledge of you, because an increase in the knowledge of you is an increase of living and life and light. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray this morning. Amen. So we need to get into Paul's position here as he said these words, increasing, increasing. That had to be the echo of his heart. I know that because as we move over 
and use some reference scripture over the next couple of weeks from Colossians chapter 1, he talks about this increase. We talked about the increase of the word of the Lord all through the book of Acts. Jesus himself talks about the increase as he speaks in the parable of the sowers in Mark chapter 4. Increase is all in our scripture because whenever the word of God comes into you, you cannot remain the same. You will either increase or you will turn from it and decrease. It's an amazing thing. Becoming greater in size in us, it is that small kernel, as Jesus would say, that smallest of seeds, the mustard seed that turns into the biggest of plants in the garden. And it just keeps expanding, just as the kingdom of God does. So we have to look at Paul's position here as a church planter. This church at Ephesus is, uh, was a church plant that was very near and dear to his heart. Spent some real time here uh, developing these folks. It was the head of the seven churches of Asia, and therefore and it was an important role model. So as Paul begins his trip back to Jerusalem, he calls together the elders at Ephesus. I mean, he'd spent about three years here. And he calls these men together to speak to them one last time. He calls them together there in Acts 20, chapter 20, verse 22, to a city called Miletus. It's kind of a neutral place where he could call them together and begin to speak with them about the church in Ephesus because it was kind of the central church. And so Ephesus would go, so the rest of the churches in Asia. He said to him, Behold, I'm going into Jerusalem. And I'm doing so constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but he did know that he would not return to this Ephesian church. He knew this would be the last face-to-face meeting, this meeting at Miletus. So he tells them, and now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone in and out proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Paul understood of his coming death that the Lord was not going to send him back to these churches again. And as somebody that had believed and loved these folks, these saints there at Ephesus, and worked so hard among them, his heart must have just been on fire for them. He prayed earnestly, continually for each of these churches, and now he says to them, you will not see my face again. Not only would this have been difficult for him, but it would have been difficult for them, their leader. Um, the one that they looked to, uh, perhaps if there was a dispute or something that needed to be cited, they would call on Paul. Uh, that one strong central part, partner would now not be seen again. So he gives these Ephesian elders this one last truth. And brothers and sisters, when there's scant little time for things like this, it needs to be narrowed down to those things which are precious. The most important is what he gives them, and we read that in the verses 28 through 30 in Acts 20. He says to them, he said, Pay careful attention to, you, to, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Paul understood this, this, this job of an overseer, of an elder. He understood the importance of it. He cared for the flock. He understood that they were God's sheep, and yet he was called to be the under-shepherd. And these men, these elders at Ephesus, were called to that same position. It was a very important task that they have been called to. He said, make sure that you... Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for that church of God, which he had purchased with his own blood, because this is what Paul was getting to. This is the, the meat of the, 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 the truth here, and it's, it's still true today. He says, I know that after I depart, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves 
They'll raise up men that speak twisted things, trying to draw disciples away after them. For Paul, there was nothing more important than the health and welfare of the church. I so concur with this. I agree. The doctrine of the church is the most important thing to the health of the people in the church. And this is the pastor's burden. It is a church planner's burden. And indeed, it was Jesus Christ's burden, the sheep, that they be fed properly. So Paul left them a defense mechanism against those rebels that would prize up and speak twisted things, the ones that would devour the flock. He said, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears and how I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul's focus was the word of God. And in the word of God, Paul that knew that they would know the God who saved them more specifically. He knew that that would be their greatest defense against false doctrine is for them to know true doctrine. He knew that the work of the Holy Spirit existed in the word of God. And he said, preach the word of God. Use the word of God as a defense. By the way, it's one of the things I've been teaching the young men. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, God gave Adam two tools to work that garden. Do you know what they are? The command, don't eat of the tree, right? And he also gave him his greatest tool that goes along with the command that he gave him, his wife, his helpmeet, to work there in the garden with him. It is the word of God that sheds all other truths. It is the word of God that saves, as we talked about last week, and it is the true word of God that sanctifies the believers, and it is the true word of God that builds up and encourages the church and causes growth. So it's not complicated. Paul's argument's just twofold, simple. First, that we should never be surprised that the enemy delights in sending wolves among his sheep. That's where they get the most production, right? Especially they'll go, uh, go amongst the weak, or new sheep, uh, the young sheep, right? And secondly, that the defense for wolves and enemies of Christ and his church is doctrine. As it says in Revelations 19, that's the sword of his mouth. It's a rod of iron that he strikes down the nations with, that Christ does. Paul knew intimately that as a senior elder among these men that they would need to be steadfast and continue in true doctrine. He had taught them and be fearless in rooting out those that had the appearance of godliness but did not live a life that matched that godliness. True word, true doctrine is what saves. It's the true word that sanctifies the individual and unifies the corporate body of the church. Truth. That's it. It's true. So often today the church seeks to be winsome and loving, and to an extent we should, but we shouldn't do it to the wolves and to the people that are intent on tearing us down. Instead of mustering the nerve to seek discipline and cast them wolves off, we want to be winsome and love some to us. And Paul says, no. Yield the sword of truth against them. They come as not as brothers, but they want to destroy. Why and be ambiguous with them? They're not with us. They are against us. So fast forward five years from this meeting in Miletus, and, and trust me, five years is a lifetime in ministry, because that meeting in Miletus would have been about 56, 57 A.D. We have Paul in his first Roman imprisonment in the early 60s. He's probably writing the book of Ephesians in, a, in about 62 A.D. there in his first imprisonment in Rome. It was there he gets this news that we pick up this morning. It says, for this reason, because I've heard. It's the news that 
a report of the people at the church at Ephesus, and he writes this epistle to them and, and to generally all the churches in Asia and indeed to the church today. But more specifically, it went to Ephesus, and it would have been central to his work in Asia, and he wanted to send it to them, this letter of, of doctrine. He didn't nail down on one problem specifically. It's kind of like Romans. It's a, a letter of doctrine, an encouragement to use that doctrine to change your life. So it's at this meeting of Miletus, he speaks to the elders this truth, and then five years later, he gets this good news, right? He gets this positive news about the church. This means that the elders at Miletus must have heard. They've been faithful. They've carried out his desire and Lord's desire to keep that doctrine pure and to be teaching it. They had heeded his warnings about the wolves, right? And because they had paid attention to the doctrine, their testimony, their church, was growing. It was flourishing. And listen to me, a flourishing church can do so much in a community that it lives. It can change it. Indeed, it can save it. So churches that focus on right doctrine grow. And that should be it, right? All's well that ends well, right? Paul can now go to his final home, his final resting place, and just sit around until that happens and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not so. Paul does not acquiesce that easily. He really, he knows better. He's got to keep his guard up. His satisfaction about them is not yet completed. And you say, this must be why pastor never seems to be satisfied and always asking for more. And I say, you're exactly right. That's exactly what a good pastor should do. We don't want you to be satisfied just with the first fruits of the working of the Spirit. But we want everybody we know to grow into the truth and the wisdom and the revelation of God. Beloved, the life of the believer is a life of increasing. It's a life of gaining in the knowledge of God, gaining in the growth of Him, and gaining in sanctification. It's a life of growth. It's a life of increasing. So let's take a look at the moment for the prayer that Paul has here for the Ephesian church, because I think there's a wealth of truth here for the church today. And remember, this letter is not written to individuals. This letter is written to the church full of individuals, right? So it's literally written to the corporate gathering and was read among the corporate gathering. So Paul says there in verse 15, you see it? He says, for this reason, for this reason they begin to pray. And this reason is substantiated on everything we've just learned. For this reason, or because God is faithful, because God has done what God has done. God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. We saw that in verses 3 and 4. Christ died in verse 7 so that his blood could redeem us. We saw that there and that we could have forgiveness uh, of our sins and our trespasses. And then in verse 13, we looked at the Spirit as it came and we heard the word of truth in our own time and place. And we believed. We were given faith and we believed, right? God planned, Christ played, and the Spirit applied this great salvation. Paul's saying, for this reason, so for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you always in my prayer. So for this reason, because this is what the world is about, uh, Paul's world, your pastor's world, and ultimately this world, this is what it's all about. All of creation points to God's working amongst us and his goodness and his salvation in his son Jesus Christ that was paid for 2,000 years ago. It goes back to verse 10. That's why this verse 10 in chapter 1 will continue to grow as we go through this book. 
for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul wasn't spending his last days hanging out on TikTok making videos, snappy videos about uh, uh, punctiliar things to say about Christian activities. Paul was praying on his knees that something more, this is his modus operandi. He wanted to see these believers go into the next level. He did not want them to stagnate because a stagnating church is danger being taken over by wolves that come in and they find sympathy among us because they twist the scripture and they take people away and the church languishes and the community in turn languishes all the same. Paul said, no, let's not stop there. There's an increase to be had. I don't want you to just stop there. Don't get comfortable there in your skin. Just think about it a moment. Think deeply about how brief this life is. I want you to grab on to the important, not get bogged down in the superficial or sidelined by the trivial. By the temporary, this world and its trappings are fleeting like a vapor, James says, and then your life is over. Make your time count and you will have an eternity for the rest of the things, right? So here's the one thing that Paul understood. A sovereign God will bring his elect to face. Thus, Paul faithfully preached the gospel. A sovereign God will always bring his elect to faith. He didn't start this action and make this plan to see it fail. So Paul was able to faithfully preach the Bible, the gospel. Paul was continually thankful for the miracle of salvation. He's praying here in thanks for that. Seeing the faith of these believers was a work of the Holy Spirit among them. And their love, as we'll see here in a moment, was another evidence of the work of the Spirit in him. He understood that his labor was not in vain. This was Paul's entire mission. This was his entire life. He was a church planner. He wanted to see the gospel go forward. He wanted to see God glorified in it. So he'd say this to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10. He said, <clears throat> and he, and he listen to me, this was his second imprisonment. This is where he knew he was going to die, and he was still on these truths. He wasn't, he wasn't worried about his life. You know Paul. It counted to him as nothing, as dung, he would say compared to the glorious riches of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. He wasn't going to let down. He was going to continue to encourage this group and go after more. He had sent Timothy there for the explicit reason that we read in 1 Timothy 1, to refute the false teachers. So he says this to Timothy during his second imprisonment, where he does know he's going to die. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel, the one for which I am suffering and bound with chains as a criminal. But listen, he said this to Timothy, and it must have been so encouraging. Though I'm dying here in prison in chains like a common criminal, the word of God is unchained. He said, but the word of God is not bound. And if the word not be bound, beloved, we not be bound. You understand that? It's the key to this increasing. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain that salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says the word of God's not bound. It continues to increase. It continues to endure. It continues to save. It continues to bring faith and love out of people who were sinners and dying and dead and headed for hell. Please note that God's plan and working is the efficient cause of the faith that Paul expressed seeing 
and love, and their faith and love is the evidence of God's working among them. God is the efficient cause of their faith and love, but their faith and love is God's evidence working among them. Paul intimately understood that. He intimately understood that about the elect. He knew that God would bring them to salvation. That's why he was so serious about his preaching and his work. It wasn't secondary. I think if Paul could stand here today, he'd tell you, quit, quit, waste, quit letting your focus be diluted by things of this world because the things that are to come are so glorious. He said, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for that, for you, remembering you in my prayers, for their faith in Christ and their love for the church, the saints. Those two things go together. Beloved, <clears throat> faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit wrought in the work of regeneration. We read that in verse 13, remember? We saw that there. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, that's where the Holy Spirit works. That's why Paul was so tenacious about doctrine. It's there in the truth of the word of God that the Holy Spirit works, and you hear that word of truth. It's the gospel that saves you, and you what? He says you believed in him. There it is. You believed in him. Faith is a work and gift of the Holy Spirit so that you can respond in faith and repentance to the gospel. That faith is a gift, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast, right? But he was also thankful for their love. And that love that they had for one another was a fruit of that same spirit. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against all such things there is no law, Paul would say in the book of Galatians. Just one chapter over in chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. Both faith and love emanated from the work of the Holy Spirit in these believers. One is a gift, the other is the fruit of the Spirit's indwelling. But here's the truth of that. Faith is never present where a love for the saints is absent. The two have a symbiotic relationship. Faith and love in the believer share a symbiotic relationship. One cannot exist without the other in the life of the believer. If you claim Christ is Lord, you cannot not love the bride of Christ, his church. You see that? Paul is connecting those two things together there specifically. So you need to get on out of here with the craziness that I can worship from the deer stand or the golf course or the racetrack or the river. All of that is excuses because worship is the corporate gathering with the saints that you love on the Lord's day to the praise of the one who saved you to celebrate communion, to draw together. It's a corporate work and you ain't got no corporate worship going on on no golf course. <laughs> Just a little joke of a side there. But what Paul is saying is you can't have one without the other. If the Holy Spirit is given one, the Holy Spirit has given the other. If you say you have faith in Christ and you proclaim Christ as Lord, you will have a love for the Lord's church. And that's where a lot of people fail. You can't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. So is the world. Church is full of hypocrites that know they need to be saved. They know they need Jesus, right? As a, <clears throat> um, in the words of an infamous politician among us today, come on, man. Who's believing that? Come on, man. So Paul received word in his jail cell of their faith in Christ and their love for one another. And this 
had to be so encouraging to Paul. But he does what any good parent does to their children. He doesn't let them stop until they've received every good that's due them, every blessing that God wants for them and for us. He prays for the Spirit to do even more. Now, please understand that I don't see this as a second blessing. This is just an increasing in the believer that the Spirit will do if the believer is true. Now, you can quench the Holy Spirit, right? And you can grieve the Holy Spirit by staying out of Scripture. But if you're truly saved, you will not stay continually out of Scripture or out of church. You will read and you will come. So Paul is saying in that gap there, let there be no ambiguity. I want them to be pulled into the knowledge and the truth of God. So he prays for the Spirit to do more, that the next work of the Spirit would come, that they would increase. This is the life of the believer from our perspective. It is all increase. Remembering you in my prayers, he said that the God of our, you see it there in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the glorious Father in the Greek, the glorious Father may give you the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, Penuma in the Greek, that is the Holy Spirit, definite article, the Holy Spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him because that's what the spirit does that's what the spirit brings but paul wants that to increase in these believers that he would bring that to be continually bringing that beloved this increase and paul did not want them to stagnate and quench the spirit as i said or to grieve the spirit he wanted the increase for the wisdom the revelation the knowledge from the spirit it's all about this increase this is what the church takes from nothing and makes into something this is what makes the church bigger than the people that just make up the church. Just the fact of eternal a life is increased, right? Just the fact of eternal life is increased over death. And life with God is an upward motion, an upward continuum that brings us closer to him, more intimate with him. It makes us more like Christ. We are being made holy as he is holy. It grows in us, the word of God in us. It perfects us. It gives us life. It gives us wisdom. It is a grace and increase that we are unable to affect ourselves. It is an inheritance with, with and in Jesus Christ. But not only does it grow in us, but in the world, because it is the authority and rule. It is increasing in this world even, as we see in the book of Acts. In fact, it's unstoppable. Beloved, it's becoming a kingdom, the kingdom of God. It is an increase of which will there be will no end, Isaiah tells us. And it's Paul's beloved prayer for these believers that they would increase in wisdom. What is wisdom? It's divine wisdom. Ultimately, uh, wisdom can only come from the fear of the Lord. And it's in the fear of the Lord when you receive his wisdom, it leads you to want to be obedient to his calling. And what happens to God's obedient Christians? They get God's blessings so wisdom grows into blessings because it leads us to the God who saved us and to being obedient to him and to loving him in other words it's self-perpetuating the more that we seek God the greater our love will be for one another the more that we seek God the greater our faith will grow it's increasing all of it the more we seek to understand him, the more revelation that he will give. It's a revelation here meaning the uncovering of a divine truth in the heart of the believer. As we grow 
in God and he reveals himself more fully to us, we increase. And as we increase in the singular, we increase in the corporate. That's why it is so important to preach God's truth from Scripture and not water it down. If I don't give you that, you can't grow. And then knowledge is just the application of that in reality, I believe. It's the ability to use the wisdom that's been given God for our own good, for our own work, for his own glory. This is a work of the Spirit and the Spirit alone. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 2, we had this last week for you. This is how it works because that Holy Spirit is the Spirit that searches the mind of God. But as it is written, listen, you can see these things because of what God's done in you and His Spirit. Listen to these words. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man has imagined, that God has prepared for those who love Him. These things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For it's the Spirit that searches everything, even the great depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person? Right? And there's a whole lot going on in your conscience there. You would never tell anybody what your own Spirit says to yourself. Even my wife don't know some of those things about me. You know how your Spirit searches you. Right? The Holy Spirit searches the mind of God and brings that to us. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except that Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, beloved. That leads to decrease. But the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Romans 8.26 tells us that the Spirit intercedes for us gives us great power, great increase, having the Spirit indwell the believer, the mind of God literally in us, working for us, communicating to God on our behalf and giving us the wisdom and revelation and knowledge that he wants us to have. This increase, beloved, makes the believer stronger, more secure, more assured, more loving, more giving, giving more faith, more of everything good that God wants for us to have. And Paul prays that these believers receive that. It makes the church more triumphant. It gives increase to boldness to prayer, to ministry. It makes a Christian warrior, as my brother Bobby would say. We need more Christian warriors today. It makes us fearless. It's what's empowered David to say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God? Man, what would happen if a bunch of men got up from a church and said that in our culture today? It fuels every believer for every work. But it's especially important in the men of the church. And I know I've been on the men last couple of weeks, but I'm going to continue down that path. And men, I th- we have a great group of men growing here. Things are getting done. I, uh, this week, uh, things got done that haven't gotten done before. And we've got other people willing to do those things. And I love to see it, but let's not stop there. Let me be like Paul just for a moment. Let's go to the next level. Let's continue to search for the wisdom and revelation and knowledge that not only changes us, but changes the world around us. But man, if you're increasing, if you're increasing the church in the church here in Pennsville, it will be increasing. But if you're not increasing, it will be de- decreasing. It'll be weak. And here's the problem. Christians get all caught up with nice and winsomeness and they worry about the things of the world too much 
They get busy chasing the things that the world says the church should do, taking care of made-up crises. How many times did, during COVID did you hear that to love your neighbor well, you should put on a mask? But not now. The CDC came out this week and said it was all for naught. The powers to be that made these idiotic rules told us we couldn't gather to worship too, that it wasn't loving, it wasn't Christ-like. In fact, it was akin to hating your neighbor. Those are exact wolves that Paul was talking about, and those are the exact wolves that grow up when we're being weak men and women of the Scriptures. We need to increase, to be increasing in wisdom and the revelation and knowledge of God. Not only here at church, but in your home. Men lead in everything in the church and in the home. Men should be leading. If you're not increasing in prayer, there will be no power in the church. And if you're not increasing in power, prayer, there will be no peace in your home. If you're not increasing in worship and singing in your own home and church, there will be no power here. This is application right here. Increase gives the church power. But you say, I've made so many mistakes, Pastor. How can I be called to that position? I've sinned. I have a past, and how can I go forward? Like you say, can I be the man, the woman, the church member that God is calling me to be? Can I let go of my past and go forward in wisdom and revelation and knowledge of God and the power of the Spirit? My answer to that is yes, of course you can. That's what God wants for you. That's what Paul is praying for, for this group in Ephesus, for them to do this, to continue to not just be satisfied with the faith and love that they first had, but to move on to the wisdom, revelation, and knowledge of God. How do I do that? How do any of us do that? Well, just remember this. If you want to increase, you must first decrease. Right? Your increasing begins with your decreasing. I'm not, I'm not off the edge here. By decreasing or by destroying self or love for self, beloved, your increase is dependent on your decreasing in this world and increasing in the things of God. It's not complicated. Believers who draw near to God in the spirit and to God, the wisdom and truth in God's world and word away from this world's wisdom will increase. You want to be more loving? Draw near to God. You want to have greater faith? Draw near to God. You want your prayer life to have power? Draw near to God. You want to be holy as he is holy? Draw near to God. Lay down your life and take up your cross, beloved. Follow Christ and your life will have meaning. It will count. I promise. I can promise from every bit of breath in my lungs this morning that you will find increase there. I can't tell you one promise from this world like that. There's not one thing I can give you short of telling you that your increase will come from God and God alone. If you want to have increase in this life, men, give up your life. Give it to your wife, to your children. Give it to your church in doing the work of the Lord. I always tell young men this truth, but if you want to have power in this world, fear God because it's the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom teaches you to keep his commands, and those who keep his commands are blessed in this life. Fear God. Find a godly woman. This is what the young men and I talk about on Friday afternoons. This is not hard. Fear God. Find a godly woman. Teach and lead her well. Have five to seven children. Don't, don't gasp. Five to seven children. Remember when families used to do that, what, a generation ago? Have five to seven children, I tell them. Think about the power uh, in that. It, it, basically, it's the cultural mandate from Genesis 1.28. If you have that man, if you have those many children and you give your life to them and to your wife and you teach them to love God, be holy, love life, and give their lives for the same things that you've given your life for, and each one of those five or seven children have five or seven children, do you understand just you will have 
at least 25 to 49 grandchildren. Who doesn't want that, right? If you live to see your great-grandchildren, that grows to 124 to 243 children. You see the power in that increase? And that's before all of them have a wife or a husband. Because if you add wives and husband, that's 250 if they have five each and 686 kids if they have seven each. And guess who they all point back to? Grandpa, great-grandpa. He gave up his life. He taught us to love. He decreased so he could teach us what it meant to increase. They're all pointing back to you, giving it all to gain the increase that you've taught them about. Jesus talks about this principle. He said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Jesus is saying, if you'll give it up, you're going to get it back, right? But pastor, this is just too much. Who has done these things? Who can do these things? Who can live in the world like this? I'm telling you, you can. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might be rich. Your greatest example is the Savior of your life, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's your model. He's our church's model. He came and gave up his life, and by giving his life, how many gained life? Do you see that model? We read about him from Isaiah chapter 11. He's the hero in this story. He's the one that comes in in the end and and saves, and he will save you if you will call on his name. He will save all who will call on his name, and that is, by the way, how you gain that standing, men. That is how you get rid of that past of sin is to give it to him. He will forgive you, and he will give you the increase of your life in this place. He will give you purpose and meaning and potential that you would never have and never receive and could never achieve on your own. He's the hero here. If you will turn to him and live like him, this is wisdom from God. You will find obedience in this life, and you will find great blessing in this life. Jesus is the hero. He's the one who will will save all who call on him. Listen to this hero, the description of him from the 11th chapter again of the book of Isaiah. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. There's that increase, right? Uh, A seed has to go in the ground and die to give its increase. It works the same with us, beloved. Uh, Many will be saved because of what the shoot from the stump of Jesse has done. By dying on the cross of Calvary and giving his life, though he came out of the ground on the third day and showed us what life truly was. Listen. Listen to the parallel here of the work of the Spirit in Christ's life. Let me start over. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. You see that? Jesus lived his life with the same work of the Spirit that you had. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He's not going to judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, 
and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. But what is, what is the end of the work of this Christ? And beloved, it's the same as the end of our work when we choose to live by the Spirit and take the increase that God gives us. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear will graze together. The young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close this morning, speak to your people's hearts. Do only the work that you can do down deep in the recesses of our will. Bend us, break us, and use us for your glory. Let not your hand of work stay from us, Father. But my prayer parallels Paul. I am so thankful for these saints here. So thankful for their faith and their love. And as we see this group gelling and coming together in the unity that's brought by the power of the Spirit in your word, I pray that they reach, that you increase, that you increase the knowledge, the wisdom, and reveal more of who you are in each one of us so that we can increase and grow. And then our testimony would go bursting forth from this building into this community and that the numbers would be added and that your glory would increase on it. Father, work in, your, <laughs> work in these beloved saints' hearts. Let them not be satisfied with today, but ever and increasingly reaching for more of who you are and more of what Christ has done. Thank you for them, Father. Hear our praises as we sing this final song this morning. We do so in the name of Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is the one that Scripture tells us of the increase of his government. There will be no end. His dominion and everlasting dominion. We want to see him increase. In Jesus' name. Amen.